I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Well, Mark, I am so excited to talk to David Hardoon today based on his breadth of experience having lived in so many different countries, born in Israel, schooled in Europe, living in Asia, and his deep experience with computer science and data. I, I too am very excited, Miriam. I uh, can think of few people who have just crossed all of these different uh, boundaries between academia, government, uh, regulation, uh, and now industry. And I know that David um, has uh, written thoughtfully about issues around trust um, and has also been on the front lines in Singapore of helping develop and implement uh, some very advanced policies and approaches to uh, managing the risks of AI. Yes, this should be a good one. Let's jump in. Let's do it. We are pleased today to be joined by David Roy Hardoon. David is the Senior Advisor for Data and Artificial Intelligence at Union Bank Philippines. David concurrently serves as an external advisor to Singapore's Corrupt Investigation Practices Bureau in the capacity of Senior Advisor for Artificial Intelligence. And he also advises Singapore's Central Provident Fund Board as a Senior Advisor for Data Science. Prior to his current roles, David was at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, where he was appointed the first chief data officer and head of the data analytics group. David has extensive exposure and experience in both industry and academia, and has consistently applied advanced technology with an analytical mindset to shape and deliver new innovation. He holds a PhD in computer science in the field of machine learning from the University of Southampton and graduated from Royal Holloway, University of London with a first class honors BSc in computer science and artificial intelligence. I should also say that out in the field, David uh, considers himself to be a data artist instead of a pure data scientist. And we are going to make sure to ask him about that. So David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's great. And by the way, that, that intro, I mean, it started off with my full name. So I was like, oh, no, am I in trouble? Did I do something wrong? Uh, but, but it, great build up. That, I mean, thank you very much. <laughs> it, it's a pleasure. We will, we will see whether you're in trouble as we move through the questions, but I, I suspect not. Um, David, you've had an extraordinary career, as the, the introduction indicates. Uh, you started as a computer science PhD. You've worked on data governance and AI in both the public and private sectors. Um, how did you first get interested in AI, and uh, what's it been like for you to move through all of these different different sectors? Oh, okay. Well, it, it's okay. This is when I said that I I I, had, I need to have a T-shirt other than this one that says "Pass to the Metal." I, I said a geek before it was cool. Um, I still remember it. I was 16, yeah, just turned 16 years old. And I got probably sent uh, due to detention to the library. Couldn't be any other reason. And I picked up a book about Prolog. And Prolog was essentially, or is still essentially, a logic project programming based language. So it's an expert system. And I started flicking through this, like, you know, what is this stuff? What does this mean? And I just fell in love. I completely got infatuated with this idea of that you can program logic, you can pro program decisioning, essentially. Now, it was either kind of diving that into deep or going to psychology, and I don't think I would have done that well. So it was really about me being absolutely fascinated with how can we actually understand people better, understand behavior, understand this miraculously of patterns around us using machines. So it, kind of, it, it really, really started with that. And Hence my initial wealth being an academic, a researcher. Well, 
so much to talk about here, David. I'm so curious about uh, your your work in, in AI and ethical AI in particular. Uh, I'm particularly excited to be hearing from you because, uh, you know, when we think about the areas where ethical AI is most critical, uh, we think about healthcare, where it's life and death. Um, but really, probably number two on that list is arguably in finance, where it impacts someone's choices, their decisions, their opportunities. And I'm curious uh, how your work has uh, progressed, what your focus is, and what you think others in the finance space need to be mindful of that you've encountered in your path to ethical AI. Well, uh, I would start off by, and again, I'm not trying to be difficult, but actually to even ask that question in terms of, is it ethical AI or AI ethics? And, and the reason I'm making this a bit of like this hairline distinction is because at times, again, this is a personal perspective point of view is ethical AI almost derives this kind of perspective that by definition, the AI can be ethical. I actually don't believe it can. And, and that's a starting point. It, that doesn't mean, and, and obviously by any means whatsoever, it doesn't forget that we shouldn't have ethics. We shouldn't have the ability to non-discriminate and result in situations that people are not disadvantaged. But if we start off with the perspective that we can design an AI that is ethical by definition, I'm a bit worried that at this stage, at this era, we may not succeed. However, if we flip it around by saying, no, we need to have ethics in our AI, what essentially means by definition, the AI can make mistakes, it can go wrong, but we need to put resiliency. We need to put buffers along the way to validate and control and check. So that is, as a backset, about uh, now, what, now three years ago, with COVID, it's like time is, a, is an immense blur. Um, one of the things I realized in the financial space is there was, there was no, there was no almost a definitions of right or wrong. There was no regulatory kind of uh, uh, guidance with respect to what is that uh, AI ethics essentially. Um, and we put together, you know, this is part of the work that was done in Monetary Authority of Singapore, uh, FEAT, which stands for Fairness, Ethics, Accountability, and Transparency. And in long story short, because I love keeping things simple, it's 14 principles along those dimensions of fairness, ethics, accountability, transparency that essentially lay the foundation of what I was mentioning earlier. What, is, what, what are the considerations of ethics that one should put in AI? And just, just to give you a last illustration to kind of maybe really bring it to home as an example, not, not to uh, dig up uh, mistakes or you know, mishaps of the past, but you know, we all remember what happened with Apple and Goldman Sachs with the case of the credit card and the credit limit. The consideration and the kind of almost the, the, the challenge I always throw back is saying, well, why, why didn't we never consider the situation that, yeah, things will go wrong that may have have and as, as have had a situation linked to a, a um, uh, you know, sensitive attribute, but have a verification that we, we can check for it. We can go, well, look, we know these pieces of information. Let's validate. Let's look before you make the decision, before you give the credit, before you're saying this is what you you're going to get and what you're not going to get, do a check. And if you see that something looks odd, if, you, if, you, if, if something looks imbalanced, as with uh, engineering, you know, safe uh, uh, self-driving trains and whatnot, very simple, stop and perhaps let a human make a, a call. Not that a human may be any better, but at least it is something that we um, is trust uh, the, from a process perspective a bit more. And essentially, and maybe that kind of way I'll close it, that is really the gear from the conversations that I've been having and what we're seeing that's now kind of surfacing up in finance is how can we trust 
the decisions that are coming out from AI-driven algorithms. And by definition, trust doesn't mean you're always right. You've 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 really um, given us a, a a really I think rich tableau to to dive into here. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna start on this question of uh, keeping on the financial services theme. Um, I, I want to come back to the question of how do you operationalize AI principles in, in just a few minutes. But uh, I'm curious. So you know you are you are you are at a, a major bank um, and you're uh, leading efforts on AI and data. You know, I'm curious what you see as the most exciting use cases for AI within the finance space, and then what you see as the biggest ethical and risk challenges that need to be thought about in implementing. No, absolutely. And, and Mark, you, you ask it, and rightly so, because they, they do come together <laughs> to a certain extent. Well, first things first, the most exciting one is because I'm I'm, I, I get, I'm maybe naive to certain degree, but I'm a huge believer that this is something that can truly help us. And when I say us, I mean people. What are this? What, what, okay, what is one of the biggest challenges in the financial sector? If you kind of go back historically, given the diversity, the different uh, 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 social demographic uh, circumstances that people are, and so forth, it's scale. At the end of the day, I mean, if you think about banking, really, it was a one-to-one -one relationship. You would have a relationship manager. Now, as financial institutions grow, even the very large, you know, GSIPs around the world, there's only so many branches you can build. There's only so many relationship managers that you can have. So when you look at countries, and, you know, I'm, I'm working now with a Philippines-based uh, institution, but you can take equally any other country around the world, approximately, where in Philippines, you have 60 to 65 million people who are either under or unbanked, essentially. Now, imagine how many branches and how many people you need to hire or train to be able to serve every single one of them. And again, there are various degrees of financial proneness and, and, and literature to a certain extent. It's not that it can't be done, it can, but it's going to take time. Where AI can really come and fit and help us is that it can take that level of service. It can take that level of offerings and proliferate it and scale it to millions of people because it, it doesn't have that challenge that we have, which is, you know, sleep every now and then. It's a nice hobby to have. And secondly, it allows to look at dimensions which we can't, because right now, risk. What do we do is, I want to ask for a loan. It's great. David, please show me your uh, uh, bank statements. Please show me your income salary slips. Well, what, what happens when, you know, and again, not giving this as any bad or good example, but just as a potential illustration, a farmer or someone who's more in the rural countryside who's never had a bank account, never had a pay slip because, you know, I get paid cash. So to get that loan when I want to, for example, try and venture into a business or grow something or acquire, how, how do I do it? It, it? Suddenly you realize that, and again, maybe I sound a bit melodramatic here, is the system is broken. But again, AI can come and say, well, hold on a tick. In the end of the day, we're interested about behavior, behavior that's represented through multiplicity of different data attributes. Can we use that to provide to the financial institution an estimation of risk, a alternative estimation of risk that we can go, you know what? I'm gonna, I can give this particular loan. But as you nicely put, that kind of also opens the door for the potential risk that 
we need to be very cognizant in how we build these alternative credit scorings, the type of attributes. I mean, we do not want to end up in a situation that we're saying, and, and let, me, let me use the flip side of driving and insurance, that just because women are better drivers and get into less accidents, men are discriminated as an attribute. I mean, you do not want to have this very uh, univariate view of the world, essentially. And let's be honest, it's not an easy thing. Because when it's the case whereby it is a coincidence or a secondary correlatory factor that it happens to be that one group is larger than the other in terms of a specific attribute versus the case that it is because of that attribute that this is happening. I know I'm, I'm, I'm again, going and splitting hairs, but this is an important and difficult conversation to have. As you say, so important. Um... And, and there's some simplicity in what you're talking about, but it seems that it is not in practice simple. So you say, just test the system, see if you're getting outcomes that are unexpected. Um, but yet that's not widespread practice as we know. And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts as to why that might not be commonplace practice. Uh, and what steps have you implemented that you find most impactful than others should follow? Well, thanks for the question. Let me, let me try and break it down into two parts. One is why is it not that uh, easy perhaps? And, and then the steps that can be applied. And, and, and I will try and stay on track of both of them. So the first one is, and let's just for the sake of discussion, put AI off the table for now. How many, and again, I'm not challenging, I'm just asking an open question, organizations, financial or not, ask themselves, when they're making a decision and engagement with a customer, are we disadvantaging a customer? You know, see, I'm trying to even simplify beyond the, are we being ethical? Are we disadvantaging a customer? I would be bold enough to say, and again, this is a personal view, that actually not many, at least not until recently, not many. So in a way, what I'm kind of alluding to is that we didn't really have this practice before AI. And maybe, actually, we, we always need it, but perhaps maybe there's perception that it wasn't needed, that because people are involved in the process, it should be inherently built in. But now if we suddenly going, well, hold on a second, forget the AI. When you are offering these credit cards, are, are you disadvantaging any group? Are you disadvantaging advertently or inadvertently? I mean, obviously either one should be completely eliminated. And again, that's a very important question. These are the things that need to be in place independently of AI. And now if I jump to the second pillar, that's exactly one of the first things that needs to be done to address it. We need to have as a process, as a, as a practice, as a di diligence, this kind of routines of whatever we do, especially when it comes to customer engagement interaction is, is it the right thing? Is, does it uphold our culture? Does it uphold our values? And I, I'm emphasizing the our because it may differ, of course, country by country. And I I'm, will be the last person to say what's right, what's wrong. But now AI introduces, unfortunately, an additional complexity. Because as I was mentioning earlier, it looks at a vast degree of, 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 of data, essentially, of dimensions, of things that we never really considered to that uh, uh, granular level of extent. It now means that from a regulatory point of view, from a policy perspective, things may change. Like for example, if you take the US, whereby 
from a from a policy perspective, you cannot you cannot collect, you cannot look, you cannot analyze at you know gender, religion, race, and so forth. But if I can't look at gender, how can I analyze if I'm disadvantaging based on gender? You see, you suddenly are hitting in this oxymoron to a certain extent. So there is a need, there is a perspective whereby from a regulator point of view, by saying, okay, how do we update, upgrade, revise, you know, whichever is the right term, to allow for these practices that we need to have in place anyway of reviewing and validating disadvantagement, transparency, to a world whereby we're trying to prolificate AI because of those benefits. And again, it may be, a, not it may be, it will be a scenario by, sure, you're now allowed to collect these attributes, but you are not allowed, you're forbidden to use them for any other purpose, but for the validation of your algorithms, for the validation of your models. This is, well, I hope it sounds simple because in, obviously in my mind it is, but obviously from a regulatory move, it is not that simple. Now, I'll mention one last thing, actually many things, but I'll try and keep it as a last thing, which is also important. And I, I really am a big believer, you know, doesn't matter how complex things seem, keep them simple because even if, if, if they're complex, we need to get small incremental movements in the right direction, you know, small little optimization that get us to the big, uh, the big prize. The other one is validation. We need, we must have a practice of validation. It's not new. Again, a lot of this stuff is, we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Specifically, financial sector already has the requirement of independent, excuse me, validation of credit risk scoring, et cetera, and so forth. Well, AI model, it's just a different model. It's an alternative model. It should follow the same practice. It should follow the same governance and the same routine. Does it mean that potentially our model validators may need to have a broader perspective, broader capabilities, broader oversight? Yes. Do they may need to have the tools to do it? Absolutely, yes. But they should do it because I need to have, we need to have the ability to say that does this um, um, algorithm is, is, does it fall within the perimeters of governance? Is it doing the right thing? Can we validate? And as, as I mentioned earlier, is it meeting these kind of objectives and goal? And then finally, as part of this whole procedure, it will also shine to light where things may change. Like for example, transparency. And I'll give you an example from a different industry just to illustrate it. Uh, what did Boris Johnson say? Uh, rogue, mutant, sorry, mutant algorithms. I, I, I love that. Um, where actually, whether mutant algorithms or not, this was to do with the education and the scoring of their um, of the students last year, uh, because you know COVID, everyone had to do it at home. What we needed was was a mechanism for uh, well rebuttal for 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 uh, saying well look I, I disagree. Now imagine if you suddenly are having an algorithm that's making a decision, but there is no mechanism for me to have transparency to how it's being done and how I can appeal to it. I don't know what I was looking for, appeal to it effectively. It, it will not elicit trust. It would not elicit that confidence that we need. And it could be as simple as, look, sorry, sir, I disagree with the decision on rejecting me from the loan mortgage because based on my understanding of what you do using machine learning based algorithms or AI and the type of data that you're using, let's say social media. Well, look, I kind of got off social media when I was 20. And, I can completely understand why you won't give me a loan if you think I'm a 20 year old, but I'm no longer 20 year old. Allow me to provide you the data to evidence my eligibility to a loan. 
you need to have that circle mechanism. That's, um, that's I, I think, a, a really great segue into, into the next question that I have for you. I think um, what, what you've just gone into around validation and, um, and, and around trust, I think, is critical and is going to be critical for the future of this space. We've seen research from the Pew Research Institutes as well as Oxford University showing that over 80% of Americans and Europeans are fearful to some degree of AI. And um, that public trust is, is, is not there yet. I think that there's public fascination, certainly. Um, and certainly the public engages with AI every day through all of the products that we use. Uh, but there is a certain amount of fear. Um, and I think it's partly because there's a lack of understanding and uh, a lack of a sort of um, ability to you know, activate those mechanisms for redress or for appealing, uh, et cetera, if people feel they have been uh, done wrong by. So I want to ask you about trust. You've written about trust. Um, you've worked in a number of institutions that uh, focus heavily on trust, the government, on a bank. Um, how should we be thinking about trust in the age of AI? How can companies build and maintain trust in their AI tools and systems? Um, and maybe you can give us a couple of examples of either success stories or cautionary tales on how trust is or is not um, built and, and maintained. I'm known to being my, a bit sarcastic every now and then, so I'm holding back and saying something. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an analogy instead. And how do you know, a person goes, goes about in building trust with another kin, essentially, with another person, with another individual? It isn't through the, the emphasis that, hey, hey, Mark, I know it all. You can trust me. I know everything. Or the fact that I'm always, always right. No, I elicit trust by being honest by being transparent. And when I'm not right, or I'm not confident in what I'm saying, I will, I will say, oh, look, Mark, I think this is the case, but you know something, I'm not sure. Or when I do say something, doesn't matter how confident I am, and you call me out and they're saying, actually, David, no, um, you know, I checked this out. We can have that discourse. I'll go, okay, that's, that's fair enough. Now, the reason I'm giving this description is because actually that, despite this um, artificialness, that is allured within the world of AI, machine learning and data science, it is critical. And if you see how, again, I don't think it was delivered. I, I truly don't believe it has been delivered, but it's been approached. It's very much a point of, we know best. This is right. This is the best way it can be done. Trust me, this is the best thing for you. And every time, all you need is a chink in the armor to further uh, 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 you know, extend the fear, which I do not ignore whatsoever. Whether or not it is, you know, based on facts, it doesn't matter. It is there, and one should do the right thing by addressing it. So every time, as you know, you know, algorithms go wrong. You know, suddenly you discover that there has been a discriminatory factor. You know that that you know uh, parents get enraged because the kids get uh, downgraded. These create multiple chink, the chinks, excuse me, that people will then say at the end of the day, see, I told you, you can't use this stuff. Go back to the human or go back to the regular process when you're like, well, actually, that is just as, you know, if I use the term, just as bad or just as good, depending on which side of the half or empty side of the glass you look at. So it is absolutely important to go, well, look, we are doing the best that we can in terms of addressing it. It is not going to be perfect. It is and may inadvertently have errors along the way. 
but this is how we want to engage. And we can do it from close pilots, from experimentation, from creating those channels of communications by saying, if you believe that this had not been in a manner or disadvantage you, you see, this is also something that we need to start, again, personal view, slightly pivot the conversation. Because when you talk about things such as ethics, when you talk about things such as discrimination, I mean, those are, those are big, those are big words. I mean, ethics, it's, 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 you, 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 you've had wiser people than many that I know debating about this about for centuries. And then what is ethics? What does it mean? And, and then same thing about discrimination, which while um, on the surface may seem extremely apparent, it is actually not. Because think about it, if you cannot discriminate, how do you make a decision by definition? It's like, it's because you would just walk into a bank and, you know, say, I want a private bank account. It's like, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, or yes, whoever, because I can't discriminate. It would be the case, I'll be very lucky for me because first time my wife would see me, she'd just marry me because I'll be the first man she would, she would have saw. So discrimination actually is an important process in what we're doing, but there's good discrimination and it's the ones that we don't want. And then the ones that we don't want is the terms that we need to use, disadvantagement. What we want to make sure that ultimately push comes to shove, what we are doing does not disadvantage any person or any group of individuals, essentially. And the way we do that is we build those channels of this is what we think is right. What do you think? <laughs> does, this, does this meet the standards? So we need to have those more uh, diverse conversations. And then when things do go wrong, not to run away hiding, not to kind of throw things away or no, to own it. We apologize. That was never our intentions. We were alerted to it and it has been rectified. And we are learning from this and we will make it better. Just like as a human, when I make a mistake, when I do something that may offend you and you say, David, look, I'm sorry, but I don't think that's quite right. Thank you. Thank you for letting me know. I wasn't aware of that. I learned it correct. And that's what builds the trust. And I know this sounds very human, but it can be absolutely done. It on doesn't a only sound human. Sorry, it sounds like an evolved human. It sounds like uh, a really mature person who can say, I made that mistake. I take responsibility. We would hope everyone would, but as we know, not everybody is in a place where they can do that. And, and likewise, uh, not every company does that. And it occurs to me, we're talking about these concepts that are often uh, outside of the business space. We're talking about ethics. You know, usually that's more something we talk about in academia or uh, outside of corporations. We're talking about asking the question of who is not well served by this system or this program. And uh, so, I would hope that companies would ask these questions, but we're also asking them, as you said, to ask these questions that have not been part of the process, even regardless of AI. So it seems to me that governments and nonprofits have an important role to play here. Uh, one thing we often like to ask our guests is, if you were advising the government, in our case, President Biden, UN, whichever, pick the government leader of choice, do you have a few recommendations that you think they absolutely need to implement to ensure that we do better, that we do less harm? As you can see, I'm squirming to answer 
Yes, absolutely. Yes. I have been the biggest advocate. And again, I, I don't know how to call it. I don't know what's the right term. So apologies if I'm using the incorrect representation of it. But we need two things. One is, and, and again, I, I'll start from the techie side, because if you think about it, a lot of the errors, validations is actually very basic data governance. I mean, we, we forget that term. It's, it's hygiene. When people say, oh, we, we, need to, we, we need to make sure we have committers looking at the, you know, the, the, the skewness of gender within the data. I'm like, that's hygiene. That's 101. If you don't do that, you're just a bad data scientist. Forget ethics. The reason I bring this up and the recommendation is we need data regulator. I mean, dear Lord, we need it. When I ask organizations anyway, I say a very simple question. Who right now, from a regulatory point of view, from a policy perspective, is accountable, not just responsible, accountable for data governance? Meaning, not when something has gone wrong, when a financial incident has occurred and it is found due to a data lapse. Not who is responsible for cybersecurity. Who is responsible to go in and say, you have hygiene. You are having governance. You, you know that the customer is the customer. You are representing who? So far, and I really hope I'm wrong, but so far the answer is no one. We need a body that acknowledges the significance and the importance that data plays in our society today, how it exists cross-territorial, across industry, and upholds, I'm really tempted to say common sense, but let's put that aside because sense may not be that common sometimes, but hygiene, whether you're a financial institution or non-financial institution. So that's number one. It is I don't want to say that'll be the you know the, the, the miracle cure that will solve all problems, but I actually feel that that is going to solve a heck of amount of issues downstream because it always starts, guess what, from data. So that's number one. Number two, and to the point that you were mentioning uh, earlier, Miriam, and I couldn't agree more, and that's why I was very deliberate in in, in innovating the conversation from the one of being an ethic to one about disadvantagement, because with no dis disrespect to the people who constitute a bank and believing that them, everyone should be a good person. A bank isn't a social organization. It is for profit. It needs to be told, thou shall do, thou shall not do. And that's the role of a regulator. And when a bank discovers that, mm, holy moly, and again, inadvertently, they're finding that, okay, we have a, lunch, uh, a bunch of people, which are MPLs, not performing loans or a bunch of people that we've been rejecting for credit loans or deposits. And when we analyze it, again, not, it wasn't the, object, the reason, but we found as a consequence, there's a larger percentage of a, a certain social ethnographic group. Um, they shouldn't chuck that away. They should go to a agency X government and go, look, I, we need to share this with you. We are doing, which by the way, is what you told us to do, you know, MPLs, risk management, risk thresholds. We're doing what you've told us to do, not to take beyond a certain amount of risk. But what we're finding is that that is resulting in a certain group of people who, be it directly or indirectly, we don't know the rationale and the reason, causality versus correlation, which are there. So 
government organization, please be a government. <laughs> you know, either tell us that we're now permitted to take a higher risk and lend, or I don't know, like I said, do a government thing. There's social uh, programs, grants, redevelopment. You see, it's, it's a so much bigger problem to be addressed. So the, let me summarize it. The two recommendations I have, one which is very explicit, we need a data regulator. The second one is we need to have this channel of communication whereby there is someone's agency or agencies who has an accountability and responsibility from an ethical point of view, which is it, is it is a societal concept. And institutions have the ability to feed information of occurrences of such disadvantagement. Again, that may be happening uh, um, non-deliberately, but so someone can act on it or be, be, in, be sorry, mandated to act on it by saying, and allow those agilities. Because imagine me as a bank suddenly saying like, okay, I need to operate at a certain risk level, but I, I can't lend to these, this group of people indirectly. But now you're telling me to, I lend to these people, but that means I'm gonna bust my risk level. So risk ratios, you know, I, this, this, I can juggle and do this at the same time kind of scenario. So that will be my recommendation. Well, I hope I hope that the, the regulators and the policymakers of the world are listening to this show because I think they could do well to, to take that advice. Uh, one last question for me, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let Miriam close it out. Uh, you live in Singapore and you have worked in Singapore and you work in uh, in the Philippines as well. Um, most of our guests have been from um, North America, Europe, um, and, and we haven't really heard a specific perspective from uh, the Pacific region. And I would just be curious to hear what you're seeing down there. Uh, what are the key trends that our listeners should know about the AI ecosystems uh, in Singapore, in the Philippines, and in um, other parts of the region? Well, I'll just take almost like the ASEAN as a whole. I mean, Singapore being, being very much an epicenter, I mean, it's a very hotbed of, of, of debate, discussion, reviews, uh, principles, as you know. But ASEAN as a region, and it's actually very much due to, to the extent of the population. I mean, also young population, very diverse population. And it goes back to the earlier point that you, 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 know, you asked me and I was kind of referring to is that that's exactly where AI and these kind of these, the promise of these solutions can help phenomenally from uh, a logistics-based company, from you know, uh, uh, the gig economy, from providing you know, microloans because it, it, we're still trying to get a situation that I, you know, it's what I need. That's exactly where it's filling the gap. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. It's, it's a hotbed, it's an absolute hotbed. So for people like me, exceedingly exciting of seeing how can we not just talk about AI? And maybe that's another recommendation I have. We talk a lot about, a lot. The question is, are we really operationalizing it? Are we really putting it into practice? And unfortunately at times, there's quite a bit of a chasm between the two. So what you're finding here is in various kind of scales is really the case of putting it in place because there is no solution in a particular area. There is no example. Whereas perhaps in, with colleagues in, in more you know, Western countries that obviously have a lot of stuff done in place, a lot of solution processes, be it AI or not, a lot of times when you build this kind of stuff, there's also a question of, well, how does it compare versus what we already have in place? Or how will it do better? Or like, do you need microloans in, in, I don't know, Europe or something like that? So it's actually, I would say, have a look at Asia, have a look at ASEAN, because there may be things that could be learned 
and adopted and also the perspective in terms of what does it mean? Because again, if, if we go back to the aspect about culture, we talk about ethics, even it even goes into aspect of, of data privacy, that there are different perspectives, there are different in views. And I'll just say last thing in terms of if we want to aspire to a globalization of technology and a globalization of AI, we need to move away from the maybe, again, historical colonization approach. Um, a bit nowadays, thankfully, very different than what it was in the past. And kind of see, just like with trade, how it is in a case that I said, I'm right, you're wrong, you need to do what I'm telling you, to how do we uh, allow for um, mutual, mutualization and essentially uh, um, um, mappings of my perspective and your perspective? Where is it where actually we're saying the same thing, we're just saying it differently, where we are different and we respect that? We need to create those mappings. To me, the aspiration of globalization of AI, globalization of, of data, we need those mappings. We need to understand the similarities and the differences. It's such a great point. And I really appreciate the global piece of that recommendation, given that data does not have borders and our use of it certainly does not. And we need to rectify that in our, our uh, governance of it as well. Well, David, I hate to bring this conversation to a close because I'm enjoying it so much and I'm learning so much from your perspective, but being respectful of your time, I uh, want to end with one question we ask of all of our guests, and that is, we like to simplify in a few words what your perspective is on the current state of AI, and we do that by asking for your rose, your thorn, and your bud. What are you excited about? What are you fearful of? And what are you looking forward to on the horizon of AI? Wow, and that's, that's the ending question. <laughs> I probably need an hour just on that one. But as <laughs> Hemingway had said, if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. <laughs> My excitement of AI, and, and I, I am truly excited. It, it's, 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 I feel like being a kid in this giant box and every day discovering something. And it's exactly that. It's, it, it is limited by our own imagination. And my focus, my true really kind of uh, resolve and while being implemented through various different industries, excuse me, now being finance is, we can now no longer just put goals, high aspirational goals, UNDP goals and so forth. We can materialize, we can quantifiably measure and do it. And that's what AI allows. So that absolutely excites me that we can truly, truly, truly build pragmatic, deployable at scale uh, solutions and algorithms to achieve that. Again, in different industries, different aspects, they can be done. So that truly excites me. My thorn, hmm. only one? No. <laughs> so I kind of I, I I, I gave, I think you, you caught along the ways, a few of my thorns is, okay, let me, I, I, I mean no offense. I always have to be a bit careful how I say things, but we kind of just need to go all grow up. We need to all grow up and realize it's still a new field. And it's a new field, meaning we're gonna have boo-boos, we're gonna have mistakes, but we need to simply sit down, have difficult conversations, agree where we need to agree and disagree where we need to disagree. And that essentially is that preclude in terms of um, um, the ethical debate. Like I said to you, when, when, and it actually took me a bit of a time as well, where it just hit me that a lot of these issues that have been portrayed as ethics of simple, Hygiene, like I said, you are a bad data scientist if you don't do it. I mean, forget ethics, you're just, just bad. So like I said, we need to downturn the, the, 
I don't want to use the word rhetoric. It's, it's the wrong word. But, you know, the, the emotional, because it is something that is very emotional, it's very personal, it's very human, and really think about how can we do it? Cognizant that there will be mistakes, cognizant that there'll be errors, but like I said, building those buffers, building those safeguards to catch them as much as possible. I, I, that's a bit of my thought because there is so much we can do. In a certain extent, we are holding ourselves back. And, and, and Mark, as you were mentioning, this fear that's being driven. And then what was the last one? There was, uh, as, oh, future. The bud, yep, On, across the horizon. What are you looking forward to? Oh man, well, okay. And maybe I'll, I started off as a geek. Let me end off as a geek. <laughs> On the future is, I would want to see what I call an AI factory. In other words, right now, if you think about it, every time we think about these things, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of discussion. It takes a lot of reviews in order to really get things going. When I look over the horizon, I, I want to see a situation whereby it's, it, it's, it's industrial. It's a factory. The moment we've discussed, the moment we have ideas like, okay, let's, let's, let's go for that. There is that standard, structured, governed approach that, you know, from A to Z, you have the product out there. It's, it's, it's there. I, that's, and I know that it sounds really geeky. It sounds not that hugely aspirational, flying vehicles or whatnot, but that to me is something that I aspire to in the future because that would mean it is, it is truly part of our lives. It means it's truly systemic in a good sense across all industries. And then we as people are benefiting for what it can give us. Well, thank you for that, David. It's a, it's a, it's an inspiring vision. And I, I don't know if I've met anyone who is pursuing it as vigorously and passionately and enthusiastically as, as you are. So I, I, I think, uh, if, if you, if you keep pushing, uh, to, you know, putting the pedal on the metal, um, uh, as your t-shirt says, um, then I think, I think that is, is surely within reach. Thank you so much, David, for being with us today. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Well, that was really quite the whistle stop tour through uh, the the world of of David and his his I think really extraordinarily detailed um, and 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 really thoughtful approach to making sure AI is trustworthy. It's really helpful to hear his perspective as someone who's worked with government, who's worked in finance, who's got a deep computer science background. It's the unusual blend of all the expertise to really lend the thoughtful recommendations that we heard. And his enthusiasm is just an added bonus. What were your main takeaways? Well, I will say the enthusiasm is absolutely contagious, um, and I am energized after after that discussion. I think there were a few things that that jumped out to me. I think some of the uh, examples that David cited from the finance industry really just underscore the need for uh, AI to be done thoughtfully and for bias to be rooted out. Um, you know, wherever it can come into the process. And I think his focus on data hygiene was really interesting in that respect. Um, and, you know, looking at that as really a prerequisite for everything else. I also thought his comments on discrimination were interesting, kind of provocative, uh, basically saying um, discrimination is a fact of life, uh, you know, decision making, uh, to some degree, we're exercising discrimination, the key is to make sure that you're not discriminating for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways, uh, and that the choices that you're making are fair. I, you know, curious what you thought about that, Miriam, and, and, and what else jumped out to you? 
Well, I think you're right that in some ways it's edgy, but it's also basic facts. You know, I think when we're talking about machine learning, we have to understand that it is identifying patterns and making uh, uh, associations based on the study of that pattern. And that is implicit bias as well. That is uh, the root of uh, our ability to make generalizations based on past experience and, and make a conclusion. The problem is when we are unconsciously doing it in ways that disadvantage people, as he's pointed out. So I really am glad and grateful that he's uh, just put out there that basic understanding that we need to recognize in order to be able to shape it and handle it with more responsibility. I also really liked, again, the point that you pointed out. I was the one I was really digesting as well. I like that instead of elevating and uh, really uh, musing on the fact of, of ethics, that he breaks it down as good data governance. It's just basic hygiene um, and, and really makes it a basic standard that we need to adopt as opposed to a concept to further debate and discuss. Sure, I think that's that's a, that's exactly right. It, it's not just a sort of you know nice thing to have or part of your CSR program if you're a company. This is actually you know kind of critical operational practice is making sure that you're treating data well and that you are um, uh, doing things operationally um, effectively and in a way that um, reduce risk and and doesn't expose you as a company to all of these possible negative outcomes. So. Uh, I, I thought that was just a great conversation and uh, a lot we can take away from it. Absolutely. And I look forward to our next episode. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 